All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're looking at Luke 21, 5 through 38, and it is a really fascinating and in some ways challenging uh, passage of Scripture. So let's set it in context, and then we'll work down through the details. Remember, it's Passover week, the, and the week leading up to really the crowning moment of Jesus' life is crucifixion. And Jesus has been spending his days teaching in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple. And this section here is the last major teaching block in Luke's gospel. It is parallel to Matthew 24 and to Mark 13. That is both uh, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 all are the same speech of Jesus. But here's an important little detail. Whereas Matthew 24 is written to a Jewish audience, Luke 21 is written to a Gentile audience. And as a result, Luke frees up Jesus' teaching to make it more clear to Gentiles. And what that means is that in some ways, Luke 21 provides some real keys to understanding Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And the first obvious thing that is totally clear from Luke 21 and thus should inform our reading of Matthew 24 is that Jesus' teaching here is first and foremost about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the year A.D. 70. It's not primarily about the second coming, even though that's often what is assumed, especially when reading Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But you can't make that assumption when you read Luke 21 because Luke makes it obvious what it's about. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king, he wept over the city as uh, for its coming destruction. You can read that in Luke 19, 42 through 44. Well, now here in this climactic teaching in the Gospel of Luke, sitting in the temple itself, he warns of the temple's coming destruction. Now, that event, the destruction of Jerusalem, did not happen in a vacuum, but was the culmination of a long history of foreign occupation and oppression and Jewish revolt. During the decades of what we could call the New Testament period, there were numerous revolutionaries and sporadic revolts put down with brutality by the Roman overlords, all of which came to naught. But this mood of rebellion was real and kind of continually boiled under the surface, occasionally erupting into revolts and little revolutionary actions. Uh, and then that mood of rebellion continued to be fanned into flame throughout the New Testament period by a growing nationalism among the Jews. And that growing nationalism longed to throw off Roman control. Well, in the, into the midst of all of this came Jesus. And Jesus wasn't like other messianic revolutionaries, but word spread that he had miraculous power and he was teaching things and he was challenging the authorities. Maybe he was the Messiah. But then he too was put down by the Romans as well. And after Jesus, there were more rebels, there were more deaths, there were more threats, there were new governors and so on. And all of this erupted into a full-scale Jewish revolt in the mid-60s. So 30 years, 30 plus years from the time of Jesus, Jesus died around the year 30 AD. So 30 plus years from the time of Jesus, a full-scale Jewish revolt against the Romans occurred. And the Romans then responded 
in force. They came to Jerusalem in force. They surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to the city for three and a half years. And then in uh, the year 70, they leveled the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And it was brutally awful by all accounts, Roman accounts, Josephus's accounts. Um, it, this was an absolute brutal siege and destruction of the city. Well, with pr prophetic insight, Jesus can see that this is coming. And so Luke 21 is a warning about this event, the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple, focused on preparing and strengthening his disciples for that day when it should come. So let's jump in and just read down through this with some comment to understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 5, And while some were talking about the temple, that it was decorated with beautiful stones and vowed gifts, he said to them, As for these things that you're observing, as for the temple and its, its beauty, as for these things which you're observing, the days will come when there will not be... Uh, left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. And so there's coming the day when the temple is going to be destroyed, when they're going to tear it down, uh, the city's going to be leveled. That's going to happen. Well, they asked, verse 7, they asked him questions saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So they're asking, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this about ready to take place? And Jesus will eventually answer their question. He, he's actually going to eventually tell them what to watch for. That begins in verse 20. But before he gets there, he first prepares them by telling them what's going to happen ahead of time and how they need to prepare to respond. So that's the first chunk beginning in verse 8. He said to them, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is near. Do not go after them. This is actually a similar warning to the one he gave in Luke 17, 22 and 23 about messianic pretenders. In other words, there will be plenty of people who rise up, and we know from history this in fact did happen, plenty of people who rise up in the decades to come claiming to be the one to set Israel free, claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Don't be led astray. Don't be confused. All right. So if someone it comes saying they're the ones that are going to throw off the shackles of the Roman. They're the ones who are going to deliver them. Do not listen to them. Um, then he goes on and he says in verse 9, And when you hear of wars and revolts, don't be alarmed, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. And so you're going to hear of various reports of wars and battles and conflicts. You're going to hear reports of revolts against Rome and all that. Don't be alarmed, he says. Those things have to happen, but it's not quite time. That's a buildup to the end. And when he says the end, he means the end of that era, the end of the temple, the end of all that it represents, the end of that age. That's what he means by the end, because that's the question they asked him. When is this going to happen? So it's going to be the end of the temple, but it doesn't happen immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be massive earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrible sights and great signs from heaven. And Jesus got it right. 
he, as I said, is primarily first and foremost describing the destruction of the temple and the leveling of the city of Jerusalem, and he got it right. The Roman historian Tacitus describes the chaotic times of the 60s for the Roman world. And so Jesus is predicting that you're going to hear all this stuff about all this tumult in the world and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines and all this, right? He's predicting that. Well, here's a Roman historian describing, writing after the fact, uh, describing how kind of crazy and chaotic the 60s were for the Roman Empire. He says, that period was one rich in disasters, terrible with battles, to torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or coming again after the lapse of the ages. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell, befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future. So even Tacitus is looking back saying that time period was crazy and chaotic and, and difficult. And in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus um, uses very similar language to Jesus to describe the demise of the temple that occurred under the Romans. This is some of the phrases that Josephus uses. He uses phrases like, don't be led astray, wars. He talks 61 times, he talks about various wars, insurrections. 24 times he uses the word insurrections to talk about revolts and all that. Earthquakes, famine, pestilences, terrors. Josephus even, like Tassus, mentions great signs from heaven. And so historians, Jewish and Roman, both describe what happened during the time period Jesus is looking forward to. And Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. And they said, that's what happened, right? And so the disciples asked Jesus, when is the temple and Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And Jesus says this, he says, things are going to get really bad around here first, and that's going to go on for a while. And there will be those who claim to be leading a messianic charge and going to set you free from the Romans. He says, don't listen to them. Then he tells his disciples that it's going to get personally bad for them uh, first. And so they need to get ready for that. So verse 12, he says, now before all these things happen, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, turning you over to the synagogues and to prisons, bringing you before kings and governors on account of my name. And so it's going to get personally bad for you leading up to the, the crazy events of the 50s and 60s. Don't be surprised by that. All right. So the fact that it gets bad for you doesn't negate uh, the truth of Jesus' kingship. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, right? This is going to happen. They're going to turn you over to the synagogue. They're going to put you in prison. You're going to be brought before kings and governors. Verse 13, he says, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. When you're brought before these people, you actually get to share your testimony about Jesus right before kings and governors. So, verse 14, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will provide you eloquence and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to oppose or refute. So instead of defending yourself, share your testimony. And Jesus says he himself will personally, by his spirit, he doesn't say spirit, but that's what he means in the context, right? He will help them have the words to say to offer their testimony when they're brought before kings and governors. 
Then verse 16, he says, now you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters and other relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all on a, uh, by all people because of my name. And Acts tells the story of these decades leading up to uh, the 60s. And he, Acts will tell the story of this happening. When Luke writes the book of Acts and we go through that together on the commentary, he tells stories of this very things happening and being betrayed by family members and friends and right and you're being hated by people and it's going to be incredibly rough for the followers of Jesus in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem the temple. The reality is it's going to be tough for followers of Jesus at various stages and various places to varying degrees but all throughout church history the same sort of stuff has been happening for the followers of Jesus and started right at the get-go, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. And then Jesus gives this assurance, verse 18, and yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, that's an incredible reassurance, but we have to hear it in the full context of what he just said. They're going to hand you over they're going to persecute you, right? You're going to be brought before kings. There's going to be trial and difficulty. You're going to share your testimony. You'll be hated by all people. Some of you will be put to death. He just said that in verse 16. Some of you will be put to death. And so whatever he means in verse 18 has to be put in that context. So not a hair, hair of your head will perish. Some of you will be put to death. That indicates that perishing means something more than dying here. In other words, you might die physically, but you won't perish. You won't be abandoned. You won't be destroyed. You won't lose your real life, your eternal life, your lasting life, even if your physical life ends. Even if they put you to death, not a hair of your head will perish. In fact, by your endurance, he says, you will gain your lives, literally your souls. You will gain, gain your whole, deep, lasting life. Therefore... He says, so let's make sure we have the flow of thought so far. Some people were talking about how beautiful the temple was. Jesus said it was going to be destroyed. They asked him, well, when? What's the sign of that? Jesus now has first said things are going to get really bad at a national, international, and personal level. But that's not the end. That's going to go on for a while. But what's the sign that the end of the temple is at hand? Listen to what he says, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, this verse frees up and clarifies the phrase abomination of desolation that shows up in Matthew 24, 15 and Mark 13, 14. It's talking about Jerusalem's desolation at the hands of the Roman army. And so that phrase, abomination of desolation, um, here is made clear to be Jerusalem's desolation. That's the sign. When you see the Roman armies gathering, like marching in this direction, coming towards Jerusalem, beginning to, to come to Jerusalem and gather and coming in force, that's the sign. You know it's time. Well, what should you do when you see that? This is what he says to them. Uh, when they see the Roman armies coming, verse 21, then 
Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. Contrary, in other words, to all normal wartime procedure, get out of the city. Normally, those in small outlying towns without a wall would flee to a city for protection, right? Bethany, Bethphage, all these little towns around Jerusalem. Normally, what would happen in a time of war is all the residents there would flee into Jerusalem so that uh, they could be protected by the city walls. Jesus says, don't do that. That is not going to work. Get out of there. And so contrary to normal wartime procedure, they're supposed to flee. Uh, if you're in the country, don't go to the city. If you're in the city, get out of the city. If you're somewhere in Judea around Jerusalem, go to the hills, right? Go hide. That's what you're supposed to do. Why? Verse 22, because these are days of punishment so that all things which have been written will be fulfilled. Punishment equals uh, the idea of repayment, vengeance, and all things being fulfilled is everything that the law said would happen to Israel for her unfaithfulness about being overrun by foreigners, well, that's going to happen, right? Everything in the prophets about her demise that first came with the Babylonians because of Israel's unfaithfulness, well, it's now going to happen again with the Romans. Everything that was said about the Messiah and his vindication and his universal kingdom, such as in Daniel 7, well, now it's going to be fulfilled. So, all things are going to be fulfilled. Jesus as Messiah is going to be vindicated. He's going to receive a universal kingdom that goes throughout all the world. Israel is going to suffer the consequence of her unfaithfulness and disobedience to God, specifically and ultimately for rejecting their Messiah. That's what's going to happen. Then Jesus offers a bit of a lament because of how bad it will be. Verse 23, he says, And woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, the people of the Jews, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Notice who Jesus laments for, pregnant and nursing women, uh, because this is an awful, you know, a siege and war is awful for everybody, but for pregnant and nursing women, oh, how hard and awful that must be. Josephus even reports of women killing their own babies and cooking them for food because it was so bad inside the city during the siege. Jesus says here that there will be death by the sword. In fact, the Jews killed each other so completely before the Romans got there that there was almost no Jews alive when the Romans actually stormed the city. Very few were alive. Uh, many of them were, those that were left, were taken away as captives to, to be slaves, right? I mean, it was just a bloodbath. It was brutal. Jews turning upon Jews, fighting each other within the city as it was sieged by the Romans. Absolute horror and awfulness. And then Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> there are uh, a couple different views. Two main views is Jerusalem being overrun by the Gentiles, or that this refers to the time of the mission to the Gentiles. When we talk about the times of the Gentiles, are we talking about the mission to the Gentiles, that's the times of the Gentiles. Or are we talking about Jerusalem being overrun by the Gentiles? 
I personally wonder if it's somewhat parallel to Romans 11.25. Romans 11.25 says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The idea seems to be that right now, post-AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Gentiles are being gathered in full force. And that will continue right up until the time Jesus returns. And so the Gentiles being brought into the people of God, and there in Romans 11, they're being joined into God's family tree. And Israel has been hardened. Uh, Most of Israel has not responded to the gospel. That's what a partial hardening there in Romans 11 refers to, that Israel has been hardened. There's still some Jews believing in Paul's day. There's still Jews believing today, even more so today than in Paul's day. But you have two things happening right up until the time of the return of the Messiah. Israel being partially hardened, not everyone believing, and Gentiles coming into the family of God. I think... The times of the Gentiles probably refers to that. Um, And so that this time period between really the destruction of Jerusalem clear up until Jesus' second coming could be called the times of the Gentiles. Jesus then describes all of this in cataclysmic language that emphasizes the significance of Jerusalem's demise with regards to God's purposes and kingdom. He talks about signs of moon, sun, and stars and all that. This is dramatic cataclysmic language to emphasize how significant this is, that this is the turning of the ages. This is a massive event with regards to God's purposes and God's kingdom. Here's the way he says it, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth distress among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This language could be literal. God could cause literal signs in the skies, literal signs in on the earth and in the sea, right? God could do all of that. So it could be literal, but this kind of language was regularly used in the uh, Old Testament by the prophets to describe the fall of nations and the fall of cities and what we would call in English earth-shaking events. When we say that, we don't mean the earth literally shook. We mean These are massive, climactic, cataclysmic events that are going to have a huge impact on the world. Uh, For example, Isaiah chapter 13 is talking about God using Babylon to judge his people. And it's described with similar language. It says, For the stars of heaven and their constellation will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That didn't happen literally. That's, that is using cataclysmic language to describe Babylon's judgment on the nation of Israel in Isaiah 13. Or again, judgment on Judah is pictured with this kind of language in Joel chapter 10, verse 2. Joel writes, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon becomes dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And So he's using the same sort of language to picture This judgment on Judah that's being brought about uh, by, uh, by God through the Babylonians. And I think that this language here in Luke 21 and the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, I think that this language describes the immediate events in dramatic fashion. 
the events of Jerusalem's demise and the temple's destruction. It's describing that with, with this dramatic cataclysmic language that was part of the prophetic heritage of the Jews. Uh, but I also think that this language can transcend those events of AD 70 and point ahead to a greater and an ultimate day of judgment, an ultimate day of the Lord uh, that is to come in the future. And I suspect Jesus' language does that here in Luke 21. That's often the way it worked in the prophets. They were speaking with this dramatic language for their time and their place and the events that they were talking about and the destruction brought by the Babylonians. And it would be about that, but it also looked forward to, like, there's going to be bigger days of the Lord. Then there's going to be an ultimate day of the Lord. And I suspect that's what Jesus is doing here in Luke 21. It describes the judgment on Jerusalem and its destruction for its unfaithfulness to God. But I suspect it also likely points ahead as well to the final and ultimate day of the Lord that will come. So, like the prophets of old, Jesus says, judgment is coming and it will be cataclysmic. And that judgment, even though it seems so awful and cataclysmic, it will actually also be the fulfillment of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. From Daniel chapter 7, look at what he says in verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus is referring to the picture painted in Daniel chapter 7. He's referred to it several times over the last handful of chapters in, in Luke's gospel. We've mentioned uh, Daniel chapter 7, but let's just recall it. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man comes on a cloud, and he comes not to earth in Daniel 7, but to the throne of God. And he's given a universal kingdom. So that's what Jesus is actually talking about here. Yes, Jesus will come a second time. He'll come to the earth, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It's just that's not what this, this verse is talking about. It's intentionally echoing Daniel 7, and the Jews in his audience— his disciples were Jews, they would know Daniel 7. When he says that phrase, they would picture Daniel chapter 7 of one like a son of man uh, ascending up to the ancient of days to God on his throne. He's coming on a cloud and he's being given a universal kingdom. That's what's going to happen. So judgment's going to fall upon the nation of Israel. And in that moment, that'll be vindication, another level of vindication for Jesus. And It'll be a chance for the, the kingdom of God to go full-scale international. Let me read you Daniel chapter 7. This is the way Daniel writes. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, uh, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so the events of AD 70 evidenced that Jesus was indeed the true king, that he's king over all nations and all the world, and that his kingdom was meant to be a universal kingdom. And, and although it had already begun to go to the Gentiles, right, from that point forward, it went full scale to, to the nations around the world. So now, at this point in Luke 21, 
Jesus had answered their question. When will this happen? What's the sign? Well, the sign is Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So what should they do when they see this? Well, they need to get out of the city. And this is what he says then to add to that in verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. In Daniel chapter 7, the coming of the Son of Man to the throne of God and his being given a universal kingdom is described as the time when God's people take possession of the kingdom, right? And that's what Jesus seems to be referring to here. But here's the challenge. The way it's described in Daniel 7 is straightforward as if the kingdom comes all at once. But the way it played out in history there's this long overlap between the ages, the present evil age and the inbreaking of God's kingdom and the age to come overlap. And they've been overlapping uh, since the days of the apostles, right? And so we have this tension. It's the same tension that fulfills, uh, that fills the whole New Testament. It's the tension between the already and the not yet that we have this overlap. And so the kingdom has come in part but not fully, there's still more to come. Nevertheless, Jesus' point is that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's when you know what's about to happen, that things are about ready to get bad, the kingdom's going to go universal, so you need to be on your alert, and you need to get up and be on your feet. Then he uses an illustration to emphasize this sign, verse 29. And he told them a parable saying, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near, right? That's a simple illustration. You see the fig tree leafing out. Oh, summer is getting close. Well, so you too, when you see these things happening, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, the siege uh, on the horizon, you realize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So some who want to see this as referring first and foremost to the second coming try to explain the word generation as referring to the generation living when the second coming happens. Or some just say Jesus got it wrong, right? But that's, that's not the best way to take the word. Let's just take it at face value. This generation refers to the generation he's talking to. Uh, the people that right, the people living in that day and age, and what Jesus says is, this generation will not pass away before Jerusalem meets its demise, which happened about forty years from Jesus saying this, um, and so that generation was around when it all happened. Jesus is giving a, a hint of a timetable, right? Like it's going to happen sometime during your lifetime. Um, then. That's why he gives them the appeal and the instructions in verse 34 through 36. Because it's going to happen to them and it's going to happen in their lifetime, he says to them, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth, but stay alert at all times, praying that you will not, praying that you will have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Standing before the Son of Man here seems to suggest that uh, what will happen to Jerusalem is an act of judgment that Jesus uh, as king is bringing on the city for her 
disobedience and unfaithfulness, and they need to be ready so they're not caught off guard by it. And indeed, they actually weren't. In fact, history tells us that there were no Christians in the city of Jerusalem when it met its demise. Uh, the Christians had actually fled, at least the majority of them had fled to Pella across the Jordan River and were out of the city when it was sieged because they took Jesus' words here to heart. And so they got out of the city, they were watchful, they recognized what was going on, they remembered Jesus' warnings, and they fled the city of Jerusalem before all of this stuff really got bad and went, went south. And that's the essence of the teaching here. That's the last major teaching block in Luke's gospel. Luke ends the little section with just two verses kind of wrapping uh, up the, the teaching material in his gospel by saying in verse 37 and 38, now during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mountain that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up very early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him teach. And so Luke just simply wraps up all the teaching and lets us know what's going on. Jesus is hanging out in Jerusalem during the day, hanging out on the Mount of Olives at night. Now, let's just offer some summary and reflections then on this teaching block uh, about the destruction of Jerusalem. First off, the first reflection is just the fulfillment of prophetic word both Old Testament and Jesus. Like Jesus is the culmination of Israel's story. And what Jesus says here and what happened in 70 brought an end to that old era. Like it, it climaxed, it culminated, it brought an end to all that was that old era. And Jesus could see the handwriting on the wall by his interactions with the people, watching their interactions with Rome, knowing the spirit of the age. He knew where it was going. And so with prophetic insight, he gives this, this really detailed warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it happened. It happened as a fulfillment of Jesus' word, it happened really as a culmination of Israel's story and the prophetic words of the Old Testament leading up to this moment that her unfaithfulness would lead to uh, the destruction of the temple and all that. And so uh, God kept his word. Jesus kept his word. The prophetic word was fulfilled. And yet, God's story of redemption is not over. There's more to happen. Uh, the kingdom has come in part, but not in full, right? The kingdom of God was coming in Jesus, came more fully after his death, burial, and resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, but it hasn't come fully and completely. We're still waiting for more. The day of the Lord in judgment on Jerusalem is not the final and ultimate day of the Lord. The king himself will return, and there will be an ultimate day of the Lord, and there will be thus a final and ultimate day of judgment. So in the meantime, we too need to be alert and steadfast and persevering. We too need to know that persecution is going to happen. The world is going to be crazy and that's going to go on for a long time. And we too need to remember that by our endurance, we will gain our souls. And so although this word was about specific events uh, that happened in their generation, the truth of this uh, text continues to be true because we're waiting for the rest of the story to be written. Written, And so as followers of Jesus, we need to heed his words and remember that by our endurance, we will gain our souls as we are steadfast and alert and patient and enduring, waiting for the return of the king.